at the risk of losing you in the first 30 seconds of this sermon, I do want to ask you a question, a couple of questions. What's the nicest thing somebody has ever said to you? What's the worst thing someone has ever said to you? In the next three weeks or so, we're going to see the best and the worst of questions and answers. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for this word of yours. We thank you that it is more powerful than any sword that we could construct, sharper than anything that we could grind. We pray that you would meet with us this day as we open up your word, that the Holy Spirit would fall on us and that we would be open to hearing your word much more so than the people in the day of Malachi. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Yes, for the next few weeks, we're going to look at Malachi. And so this morning is a bit of an introduction to this book. If Genesis is the introduction to the Old Testament, Malachi is the exit. And how does the story turn out? Those of you that like to read mystery books, I know that uh, there are those that can't wait to find out what happens, and so they read the last chapter first, and then they go back and read the book. Uh, Several years ago, my mom was visiting with us, and we had uh, the seven videotapes of Jane Austen's Pride and Prejudice, and she was just dying to find out what happened at the end. We had to hide the last videotape from her because she was going to put it in and find out uh, what, what happened. Um, so to this morning, we see the ending. This is how it ends. It's not a happy ending. It's not a happy ending at all. You perhaps are familiar with the plot. It begins with, out of all the peoples in the world, out of all the clans, tribes, ethnic groups, one is chosen through Abraham. And that nation is going to be given incredible promises, promises that they're going to have a land. Abraham has Isaac, who has Jacob, and 12 tribes emerge. They are given this great land that is promised to them. A glorious temple is built, beautiful, beyond imagination. Kings, David and Solomon, come to rule, and this becomes the envy of the nations all around Israel. But like most nations, including ours, the nation of Israel devolved into a civil war. And it was over, of all things, states' rights. The ten tribes in the north said, Jerusalem, Judea, you don't have the right to tell us what to do. We are out of here. And so a civil war takes place, and there's a division between the ten tribes in the north and Judah in the south. The northern kingdom was apostate from the very outset. Despite being sent prophets like Hosea, Amos, Jonah, Elijah, Elisha, they never repented. At some point in the 8th century, Israel had gone beyond the point of no return with God 
God allowed Assyria to come in and took the ten tribes and they disappeared from history. I mean, if you are a Jew today, it's because of the tribes of Judah and Benjamin. In the south. These ten tribes completely disappear. Their brothers in the south, unfortunately, Judah, followed the patterns of the ten tribes. And in 586, God sends modern-day Iraq, what we know as Babylon, over into Judah and takes them away, destroys the temple. While these Jews are in Babylon, a greater power, the great empire of Persia, emerges. Persia comes into Babylon, destroys Babylon, modern-day Iran. The Persians allow the Jews to go back to Jerusalem, and in fact, Cyrus the king assists them in rebuilding the temple. And so when Malachi writes this book, the Jews have been back from Babylon for 100 years, The temple was completed 60 years earlier. And the Jews are waiting for the brilliant promises that were given to them in Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel. I mean, outlandish, over-the-top promises like um, they will say of this land that is desolate has become the Garden of Eden. Streams in the desert. The desert will bloom. Everybody will be joyful. But things are not going great. March 3rd, 516 was when the temple was completed in Jerusalem and the Jews wept, not for joy. The Jews wept because this temple that had just been built was just a shell of what it was before it was destroyed earlier. And when the first dedication of the temple took place, God came down, Yahweh came down and filled the temple with his glory. But when this second temple is dedicated, there is nothing like that. Are the streets of Jerusalem flowing with cattle, sheep, goats? Are the vegetable vendors overflowing with baskets? As Malachi writes this book, no, Jerusalem is characterized by shacks, makeshift housing, squatter dwellings, squalid existence. The economy is in shambles. An An economy based on agriculture is barely keeping them alive? Are the surrounding nations shaking, astounded at Judah and Israel? No. Judah is one of 120 provinces of the great empire of Persia. And not only is it just one of the 120 provinces, it's the backwater. Nobody wants to go there. It's where you send the losers. It exists to pay taxes to the massive Persian economic machine. The extent of Israel's boundaries when this book is written is 20 by 25 miles. It is filled with 150,000 people. That's it. They are the butt of the Persian jokes. They are the yokels. They are the hicks. And the Jews in Malachi's day, their view of God's response to this sorry state is silence. God isn't doing anything. So Malachi is writing to a people that are characterized by these words. They are cynics. They are cynical. They distrust God. They are disillusioned. They are lethargic. They are skeptical of God and his church. And these attitudes are expressed in their lifestyles. 
We read some of it here in Malachi. I mean, really, is there a God there? He says that we are to give our uh, offerings and our tithes and our animals, sacrifice prescribed by God to get a sheep or a goat that has no perceivable flaws. But these people are so skeptical about God that uh, they look for the animals that are blind, that are crippled, that have running sores. And that's what they're going to give to God. It doesn't seem to do any good to serve God. Look at us. 150,000 people in 20 by 25 square miles, the butt of Persian jokes. Why should I find my best animal and give that to God? God isn't really doing anything. In verse 8, God says, why don't you try and give those offerings to your governor and see what your governor is going to do? Not, Not... He doesn't even say the emperor. He says, just give it to your governor and see that response. And the best thing to do, God says, is to close the temple. We read on in Malachi. The Jewish men of this day, they have begun abandoning their wives and going after the mixed-blooded women in the Samaria area. They were more attractive. They were younger. And so they were getting rid of their wives of their youth, and they were going after the younger women. Complaints about the tediousness of worshiping. Boring. This is boring coming to church. It's contemptible. And that's how the Old Testament story ends. It's not a pretty picture. And there are a lot of lessons to learn from this first chapter, but I want to leave you with just two this morning, and then we will really unwrap this next Sunday. The first thing to notice about this, given this background, is that God doesn't do things the way that we do, particularly with regard to timing. The obvious frustration and complaint by the Jews in Malachi's day is, why doesn't God do something? We have been back a hundred years, the temple has been completed for 60 years, and nothing is happening. It doesn't seem to do much good to find the best animal. Look, everyone else is getting the crippled ants. Nothing seems to change. And we need to remember that there are long stretches of history where it seems that God isn't doing anything. Today, we celebrate 234 years of the the Declaration of Our Independence. 234 years and a lot has happened in 234 years. If you are a U.S. historian today and you go to a university to get a job, they're going to ask you questions like this. What type of U.S. historian are you? Are you a colonialist? Do you study the revolution? Are you a Jacksonian era historian? Do you study the Civil War? Are you interested in the Gilded Age? Are you interested in the New Deal? All these things in 234 years, so much has happened that you can't just be a U.S. historian. You have to uh, specify what it is that you study. And you look at the church, and for 400 years, the church is in Egypt, and there's silence from God. We don't hear anything. We see the beginning, Joseph, and we see the end, Moses. Nothing for 400 years. You study the time of judges, another 400 years. You see the beginning and the end, but uh, 
Not much is said for 400 years. That is a long time of silence from God. Can Think back for, we haven't even been in existence for 400 years as a nation. And yet for 400 years, there's nothing apparently from God to his church. 500 years from Malachi to John the Baptist. There are massive amounts of time that God seems to do nothing. I am not good at waiting. I don't know if you are. Maybe you have been blessed with the gift of patience. I have not. I remember when I got my first computer. My goodness. I had to put in a floppy disk at the top on the A drive. There was no hard drive at the time. Wait for that program to load and then put another disk in uh, B and, oh my goodness, it took... But I thought it was really fast compared to typing on a typewriter. You just think of where we've been in 30 years in terms of not having to wait. 30 years ago, personal computers, what's a personal computer? What's a PC? 30 years ago, 20 years ago, what's the internet? There's no internet 20 years ago. Five years ago, where's Facebook? (laughs) I can be in downtown Beijing and take out my Blackberry. Downtown in the middle of Beijing, I can take out my Blackberry and with an app, find out where the nearest bathroom, clean bathroom, is in, from, from where I'm standing. I don't like to wait. And contrast that with a seemingly snail-paced, molasses-moving God who seems to not be doing what we think he should do. The Jews' response in Malachi's day was, well, that's it. We're tired of waiting. Is there really a God? History seems to be moving forward without us. And I wonder, is it, do you think, the reason we wonder whether our prayers really matter at all? I've prayed for the same thing for five years, for ten years. The food is going to taste just as good whether I pray for it or not. I don't see immediate changes when I pray and I go before God and I pour out my life before God. I don't see immediate changes, just silence. A noted Highland preacher in Scotland was once asked, do you have any complaints against the Lord Jesus Christ? Yes, he said that he comes so seldom and stays so short a time. I want him here. I want to see things changing. And I know that there is a great deal of sorrow, cynicism, unbelief that runs through our veins and through this sanctuary. But it might help us for a moment today to remember that God works at a different speed than we do. And the people in Malachi's day could not get that. I often think about the night before the Apostle Paul was beheaded. In his last letter, he said, everybody has abandoned me. I'm all alone. He had spent his life going around trying to start churches. And all the letters that he is writing is trying to help churches and Christians from fighting and killing each other. I mean, the Churches were splitting and dividing over who you follow, and the church was geographically, you know, not expansive. And I wonder if Paul could have imagined the year 2010 
when one out of every three human beings walking the planet, two billion people claim Jesus Christ as their Lord. It's taken 2,000 years. I wonder if Paul could have looked down 2,000 years and waited for God to do that. It's not the pace we might have wanted for the expansion of the church. It's the way that God has decided is the best way for it to go. Now I want to talk to you a little bit personally because some of you are older here and some of you are younger. And you're caught right now in terms of, uh, you know, as my life stretches out before me, God, what are you doing? Where are you? I think of David Brainerd. You know the story of David Brainerd? Born in the year 718, uh, excuse me, uh, 1718 in Connecticut. At 14 years old, both his parents were dead. He was orphaned. At 21 years old, he had an amazing experience with God and was called um, to be in the ministry. However, he had a problem. Couldn't be diagnosed back in 1700s. Today we would call it clinical depression. He began his diary with these words. I was, I think, from my youth, extremely sober and inclined rather to melancholy than the other extreme of joy. But at 21, something happened in his life. And he found out that he was called to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ, to be a pastor. And so he he enrolled at Yale, where they trained men to be pastors, and that melancholy seemed to have lifted because he thought, I have found my calling. That's why I was so depressed all of those years, because I wasn't in the right spot. Now I am in the right spot. But in his very first semester, he had a bad teacher. We've all had bad teachers. He had a bad teacher, and he was caught saying, that professor has no more grace than a chair. Now, the problem was somebody heard him say that and told the professor that he had said that, and David Brainerd was kicked out of Yale. And there were a lot of letters written, please let this young man back into Yale. He's going to be a great preacher. No, they wouldn't let him back into Yale. So his only option at that time was to go off and to be a missionary to the nation of the Delaware, Native Americans. He worked for eight years with the Delaware and was just starting to make progress when at 29 years old, he died of tuberculosis. Just when he was starting to get somewhere. You'd think that he was quite a failure. And yet what happened was, if you know the story, after he died in the house of Jonathan Edwards, David Brainerd's diary was found and was published and it was one of the sparks that lit the great awakening and the conversion of the nation of the Delaware and at Yale today if you go to Yale there is a building named after David Brainerd it's not the way that we think that it should go it's not what it looks like Malachi's here has concluded that it is delusional to pray to come to church to give the best of God, to give God tithes. How foolish this is. But do you know, in the first century, 
they were saying the same thing. How foolish to believe that a backwater part of the Roman Empire, that there is a man born, and he's not even middle class, and he didn't go to the best universities and the best education, and he doesn't have a home, and he is the son of God. That makes no sense at all. And he comes, and his, his message is this. The answer isn't trying to be better. The answer is grace, accepting the grace and forgiveness of my father. It was foolish in Malachi's day. It was foolish in Jesus' day. For many today, it remains this foolishness that this man born of a virgin in the backwater of the Roman Empire, living in Nazareth, a place that you couldn't even find on the map. We have looked at the maps of the Roman empires we historians have. You cannot find Nazareth. It is not there. It is too small to be put on the maps of the Roman Empire. That's what God does. Second, finally, God's initial response to this cynical group. This group that has decided there's really nothing in it. Yeah, I'll come to temple, I'll come to synagogue, but there's really nothing in it. People are deluding themselves. This is 2,500 years before Karl Marx says that this is the opiate of the masses. Uh, there's really nothing in it. I'll bring my sick, crippled animal. I'll come to church, but it'll be boring. I will pinch myself to stay awake in worshiping this, this God who says he's there but doesn't do anything. What does God do when he comes to these people who have abandoned their wives? What does he come, what does he say to those, as you'll read on in Malachi, that have said, we're not going to tithe. It makes no sense to give God 10% of what we own. What's the first thing God says to them in verse 2? I have loved you. That word love there, that Hebrew word love is in the perfect tense, not past tense. It is better translated, the Lord says to his people, I have always loved you. I have always loved you. Could you join me this morning in reviewing your rebellion against God, my rebellion against God? The moments of anger that have flared up even this past week. Days, months, years of coldness. Days when I have worshipped other things because they seem more immediate, whether it's going to be an eagle or a birdie, whether this team wins or that team wins whether this movie is going to be good or that. I mean, those are more immediate things. Those things don't move at a snail pace. I can tell you in two hours whether I like the movie or not. Maybe some of us, even in this building, have made promises to God, resolutions, we've broken them. We've concluded that our prayers are useless. And God comes to us this morning and his message to us is I love you I have always loved you in 1916 
there was a man named F.M. Lehman who was inspecting an insane asylum. There was an inmate that had just died in this insane asylum. And this man who died had moments of clarity and then moments when he was just delusional. But there was one day that he was um, very clear-minded just before he died. And he wrote a poem and he scribbled it on the wall of his cell in the insane asylum. And this is the poem that he wrote. Could I with ink the ocean fill and were the skies of parchment made? Were every stock on earth a quill and every man a scribe by trade? To write the love of God above would drain the ocean dry, nor could the scroll contain the whole, though stretched from sky to sky. He said, you know, if the ocean was made of ink and the sky was parchment, we couldn't write the love of God for us. It's not enough ink. I'm amazed at the people in Malachi's day and the extent of God's love for them. But you know, but this isn't the only time God said this. Jesus Christ came to earth. His family said that he was crazy. He chose the losers to follow him. They were after him all the time. They were trying to trap him. They would ask him questions. They would plot against him. One of his best friends would betray him. And they said, Jesus, what's your message? he said for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life let's pray father in heaven we are so like the people in Malachi's day we want you to do something we're going to see fireworks tonight why don't you do fireworks in our lives and in the church? We thank you that your message to us is though we don't see the way that history is unfolding, the way that you do, your love for us remains. We thank you especially today for grace, for Jesus Christ, for the fact that you so love this world that you sent him to die in our stead. Help us as we walk through this day, through this next week, to be assured of your presence, to not walk by what we see, but walk by faith, just as you asked those in the days of Malachi to do. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.